0: For the census, the royal family has to travel 85 miles. Joseph walks while Mary, nine months pregnant, rides side saddle on donkey, feeling every jolt, every rut, every rock in the road. By the time they arrive, the small hamlet of Bethlehem is swollen from an influx of travelers. The inn is packed people feeling lucky if they were able to negotiate even a small space on the floor. Now it is late, everyone is asleep, and there is no room. But fortunately, the innkeeper is not all shekels and mites. True, his stable is crowded with his guest animals. But if they could squeeze out a little privacy there, they're welcome to it. Joseph looks over at Mary, his attention is concentrated on fighting a contraction. We'll take it, he tells the innkeeper without hesitation. The night is still when Joseph Creeks opened the stable door. As he does, a chorus of barn animals makes discordant note of the intrusion. The stench is pungent and humid. As there have not been enough hours in the day to tend the guests, let alone the livestock. A small oil lamp lent them by the innkeeper flickers to dance shadows on the wall disquieting place for a woman in the throes of childbirth. Far from home, far from family, far from what she had expected for her firstborn. But Mary makes no complaint. It is a relief just to finally get off the donkey. She leans back against the wall, her feet swollen, back aching, good timing, contractions growing stronger and closer together. Joseph's eyes dart around the stable, not a minute to lose. Quickly, a feeding trough would have to make do for a crib. Hay would serve as a mattress. Blankets, blankets, ah, his robe, that would do. And those rags hung out to dry would help. A gripping gripping contraction doubles Mary over and sends him racing for a bucket of water. The birth would not be easy, either for the mother or the child, for every royal privilege for this son ended at conception. A scream from Mary knifes through the calm of the silent night. Joseph returns breathless, water sloshing from the wooden bucket. The top of the baby's head has already pushed its way into the world. Sweat pours from Mary's contorted face as Joseph, the most unlikely midwife in all Judea, rushes to her side. The involuntary contractions are not enough and Mary has to push with all her strength, almost as if God were refusing to come into the world without her help. Joseph places a garment beneath her and with a final push and a long sigh, her labor is over. The Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal, light skin as the pigment would take days or even weeks to surface mucus in his ears and nostrils wet and slippery from the amniotic fluid the son of the most high God umbilically tied to a lowly Jewish girl the baby chokes and coughs Joseph instinctively turns him over and clears his throat and then he cries Mary bears her breast and reaches. For the shivering baby, she lays him on her chest, and his helpless cries subside. Deity nursing from a young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling or more profound? Joseph sits exhausted, silence, full of wonder. The baby finishes and sighs, the divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds then for the first time his eyes fix on his mother's deity straining to focus the light of the world squinting tears pool in her eyes she touches his tiny hand and hands at once sculpted mountain ranges cling to her finger she looks up at Joseph and though through a watery veil their souls touch he crowds closer cheek to cheek his betrothed. Together they stay, stare in awe at the baby Jesus whose heavy eyelids begin to close. It has been a long journey. The king is tired. And so, with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity without protocol and without pretension. In this little town of. Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. sets up what I want to talk about today and that is the paradox of Christmas. Paradox by definition is a seemingly absurd or self contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well founded or true. Such as uh, nobody goes to the mall anymore. It's too crowded. Right? Or this from Hamlet I must be cruel to be kind, or Elvis Costello, depending on your cultural awareness, or this, if there's one thing that I know, it's that I don't know anything at all. Examples of paradox. Paradox is all throughout scripture as well. Matthew 23, Jesus said, whoever wants to be the greatest should be everyone's servant. He said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. And in Luke, whoever tries to keep their lives will lose it. And whoever loses their lives for my sake will keep it. Paul said this in Romans, you have been set free from sin, but you become a slave to righteousness. When we are weak, then we are strong says in Philippians, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And James puts it this way, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's a paradox. And there are lots of paradoxes surrounding Jesus himself, starting with the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus being the, the savior and the deliverer of all mankind. But he also said that Jesus would be the man of sorrow who was lonely and rejected. Various prophets would write about the king of glory or the king of heaven, the eternal savior, the desire of all nations. And then they would write that there was no beauty that humanity would be attracted to him or desire him. And that he would be a servant, he would be bloodied, he would be suffering, he would be crucified. That the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind, would die in order to save mankind. Isaiah would write that this Messiah would come in flaming fire to take vengeance. But Ezekiel would write that he came preaching peace so the prophets couldn't understand themselves what they wrote about Christmas, about this paradox. So I want to zero in on on one particular paradox that really is the crux of the Christmas story, that Jesus was completely God and completely man. Matthew 1.23 calls him Emmanuel, which means God with us. John put it this way in his gospel, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. All God, all man, he's not half and half Jesus And so walking through just the crux of who Jesus is is in itself a a bit of a paradox. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit was the father of Jesus, but in so much as we think about the human experience, Jesus had no father at all. The word became flesh purely by the will and the word of God. So the virgin birth, which is so important to our faith, is not an explanation. But rather, it's the only way of stating that the mystery, in fact, did happen. The light shines in the darkness, John says, and the darkness cannot understand it. The same darkness that we live in. The word became flesh, the same flesh that we know. He entered the world in the same way that you and I entered the world. Matthew and Luke point to some particulars, that there was a particular time and a particular place in a particular mother. And those writers get into uh, the, the geography and the politics and the economics and the, and the history, into the real world. One writer said, Christmas is the story of a radical invasion of God into the kind of real world where we live all year long. A world where there is political unrest and injustice, poverty, hatred, jealousy, and both the fear and the longing that things could be different. Jesus was Jewish. He was Middle Eastern. He was not Blonde haired, blue eyed, like he shows up in so many movies. Wasn't from Sweden. He was born into a specific ethnicity and family lineage and heritage and time and place. He was born into a people group that throughout history has been rejected and despised and persecuted. So any anti-Semitism always by nature includes Jesus. He was of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which ties the gospel to the Old Testament. Jesus was Jewish. He was a male. Not that males are superior or that God is male because Scripture says that God is spirit, but that Jesus was real flesh and blood man. Jesus was born a helpless baby. He had to be fed and and burped. Jesus had blowout diapers. That's crazy and gross. Jesus experienced every human need in humiliation. He got exhausted. He got angry. He got exasperated. He became surprised. He was disturbed by his disciples at times. He was always learning. He got mad. He got sad. He got hungry. He doubted his father's presence. He needed support from others. He he served people from the whole spectrum of socially unacceptable groups. He wanted to be left alone sometimes. He experienced fear and anguish. He enjoyed meals with friends. He got stressed out. He didn't always get along with his family. He experienced pain and loss and grief and joy. He had inner struggles. He didn't want to die. He felt isolated and lonely. He was a friend of all the wrong people. He perpetually disappointed and offended people and didn't come through for them in the way that they wanted him to come through. He was rejected by everyone. He prayed. On the one hand, he seemed to have limited knowledge, which is really interesting to think about. Luke chapter 2 says he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In Mark 13, he says, he, he alludes to there are some things that he didn't know. And yet, he just knew what others didn't. The woman at the well, John 4, she says, I'm not married. He goes, actually, you've been married five times. And the guy you're living with now is not your husband. He's like, I see you're a prophet. He, he knew the thoughts of the disciples when they were like bickering about who would be the greatest. He, he knew the thoughts of the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. He knew what was in the hearts of people, John says, and so he would not entrust himself to them. And was that the, the Father and the Holy Spirit giving him insight in real time? I don't know. But it is, it is an example of the paradox of Jesus being completely God and completely man. It, it, it's not so cut and dried. It's not so easily reasoned away. Leah and I are in a, in a small group with a couple of couples, and one of those couples is it's David and, and Sharon Henderson. And David is a pastor at Covenant Church here in town. We were talking about this kind of paradox, this kind of tension at our small group in scripture. And I was texting back and forth with David yesterday. saying, you know, what about this? You know, and and he wrote this. And so um, I wanted to share it with you. He says, the truth seems to reside in the tension between two contradictory claims. Jesus was God in the flesh and he limited, he emptied himself of the divine prerogative of knowing all things. Yet he, he never said anything wrong or mistaken. And sometimes he clearly had foreknowledge of deeper knowing, like Nathaniel under the tree or the man carrying a water jug near the upper room. But he also had limits to what he knew or allowed himself to know, such as the father knows who has the seats of honor and when the end will come mystery part of what I wrestle with he says is that I think theologians always lean toward coherent and reasonable systems of thought at the expense of faithfulness to the tension profound continuity and radical discontinuity at the same time is the only way I can keep the tension I see in the text I was talking to Rick at the gray house this morning it's really that's where I want us to land today. Some of us, uh, you know, wrestle with tension and paradox. (laughs) And that these things are not contradictory, but they are both and. God is complete. Jesus is completely God, and Jesus is completely man. And that that invites us into a deeper sense of wonder and worship and intimacy. Intimacy. Completely man, completely God. Luke 1, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. John 14, Jesus tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Colossians 1, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Romans 11, everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory be to him forever. In Jude 24 and 25, all glory, majesty, dominion, and power. All authority is his before all time, in the present and beyond all time. He is completely God, and he is completely man. And this majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing Jesus, Philippians says, stripped himself of his equality with God in order to take on flesh and dwell among us. This baby Jesus, he grew up to be a radical, subversive preacher who claimed that what he said and did was what God said and did. He forgave sin. He redrew the boundaries of the kingdom of God. He spoke for God, not just about him. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He had authority over the spiritual world and the demonic, and he had authority over nature and walked across the lake. Jesus was fully God with all authority and honor and power and glory and perfection and love. And Jesus was completely human, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. I read, people don't come to believe in Jesus by speculating about his divine or human nature. Faith comes by seeing and hearing, and experiencing what he does. A year ago, we did this series on Job. And there's this, in Job chapter nine, there are these two verses, verses 32 and 33. Listen to this. Job is, is having this, this conversation. You know, he's, he's in the midst of, of misery and agony. And he has all of these questions for God. In the the midst of that, he says, God, he's talking about God. God is not a mere man like me that I might answer him. That we might confront each other in court. If there were someone to mediate between us. Someone to bring us together. He's longing for an advocate with God. He's longing for a mediator. He's longing for Jesus. Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet did not sin. It is incredibly encouraging to think about that Jesus went through everything that we go through that he knows, and yet it's more encouraging that he went through everything that we go through and yet remained sinless. Shirley Guthrie, whose thoughts and um, writings uh, have shaped a lot of our sermon today, wrote this, sin is not a part of what it means to be human, It is the corruption or contradiction of true humanity. It is unnatural. Jesus perfectly fulfilled humanity. His sinlessness was his willingness to be sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8, in order to overcome the broken relationship between God and humanity and between human beings and themselves. It was the willingness of the one who knew no sin to be made sin for our sake. John Stott wrote the great paradox of the cross. Something shameful and absurd to Jews and Greeks was nothing to be ashamed of, for it was the very saving power of God that was transforming history and redeeming creation. Christmas means the self-humiliation of the righteous creator to share the life of and to stand with the unrighteous creatures philippians 2 says the incarnation is about jesus emptying himself taking on the limitations of humanity in order to save humanity or as uh, ambrose of milan wrote in the fourth century According to our nature, then, he offered himself that he might do a work beyond our nature. All kinds of paradoxes surround the birth of Jesus. Though people had been waiting for generations, for the Messiah to come for centuries, yet hardly anyone noticed when he actually did. There would be no room for him in the world that he made. The king who would be a suffering servant, who left his throne for a manger, his death for our life, his sacrifice for our redemption. And it was for love that he came. I'd like to read Ephesians 3 to to us, and we're going to take communion together. Paul says, I pray that you, this is verse 17, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then this really well-known verse, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He says, I want want you to know Messiah's love that surpasses our knowledge, that surpasses our ability to figure it out. That brings, that allows room, that, that creates some space for mystery and tension and paradox, that invites us into the, the bigger scope of God's majesty as Jesus was completely God and completely man. Let me read this from Francis Folks. The definite goal to which the Christian life must move and for which, therefore, Paul prays is for the readers to know the love of Christ, to know how he loved and loves, and to experience his love in loving him, in loving others for his sake. Yet even here, Paul cannot escape the paradox. The love of Christ is infinitely greater than man can fully know or imagine. And it is also much more than any object of knowledge. It is superior to knowledge, even to spiritual knowledge. It must find expression in experience, in sorrows and joys, trials and sufferings, in ways too deep for the mind of man to fathom or for human language to express. Jesus putting on flesh and dwelling among us making God available to us, accessible to us, bringing his love into our experience so that we can truly not just know God, but to know God forever through the sacrifice of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father thank you that you like we talked about last week are the God who reveals the God who wants to be known the God who wants to be found the God who pursues the God who does not reside in a distance but comes close Thank you for the Christmas story, not for the, the sentiment, but for the the mind-blowing, radical truth, the paradox, the, the, the tension of God who would put on flesh in order to save us. Some of us have heard this over and over and over. We've read these passages. We've gone to the Christmas pageants. God, would you give us a a newness, a freshness that strips away the the mundane familiarity and lets us once again marvel at the gift of your son. Thank you that as we look at the manger, we see the cross, and as we look at the cross, we see an empty tomb. Thank you that um, the gospel is not a contradiction. That you know exactly what you are doing. So I pray that you would deepen our trust. That you would invite us once again to embrace your love. Eugene Peterson says God gets down on his knees among us, gets on our level, and shares himself with us. He does not reside afar off and send diplomatic messages. He kneels among us. That posture is characteristic of God. The discovery and realization of this is what defines what we know of God as good news. God shares himself generously and graciously Sam Storms wrote, The Word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter, eternity entered time, the independent became dependent, the almighty became weak, the loved became the hated, the exalted was humbled, the glory was subjected to shame, fame turned into obscurity, from inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief, from a throne to a cross, from ruler to being ruled, from power to weakness, And yet, Hebrews 1, 3, the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand, majestic God in heaven. And there we have the full picture. Well, friends, may you have an incredible Christmas, and may the paradox of God's love in Christ reverberate in your heart and mind.